cults over here. Cults over there. There are cults everywhere. everywhere. And we're going to tell you all about it with a fairy tale twist. Welcome to Once, Once Upon, Upon a Cult. Once upon a time, there was a farm. And on this farm, if Oprah were there, she would be like, and you get a speculum. <laughs> you get a speculum. And you... Worst giveaway ever. What? <laughs> you don't like this thing? No. <laughs> okay. Welcome to Once Upon a Cult. This week we are talking Zendik Farms. And guess what, culties? Guess what? What? Okay, good. You're a culty. Um, the interview happened. Yay! With Helen Zuman, who wrote uh, Mating in Captivity, who was also... A person who lived on the farm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like saying survivor. It sounds so weird to me. Like, she didn't go through something where it was, like, life-threatening. Yeah. Especially next member. Mm-hmm. So what we're going to do is uh, we will talk a little bit about the setup of the farm, and then we will play you the interview. Yeah. Sounds yeah. like a plan. My name's Sean. <laughs> My name's Rachel. <laughs> and I'm Alan. Welcome back. <laughs> All right. So Zendik Farms. So this originated with Mr. Wolf Zendik. Yes. And much like any good Koopa Kid name, his birth name is actually Lawrence E. Wolfing. Yeah. Larry. Larry. For short. Yeah. Like Larry Koopa. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> he was born in El Paso, Texas. Mm-hmm. On October 7th, 1920, and he actually passed away June 12th of 1999. So this is kind of why we wanted to talk about it beforehand, because Helen came to the farm a few months after his passing. So she yes. never actually sure. got to meet Wolf in person. But she did get to know a lot of the structures he helped create. Yeah, and she was inundated with a lot of his teachings on a daily basis so she can speak mm-hmm. very competently on uh, the stuff that Wolf believed. Yeah. <laughs> and Wolf uh, was interesting. Like, from what I found, he was mostly just, like, an artist and a writer. Um, that was kind of what he did. Was, sometimes, a lot of times, we find our cult leaders, like, they start in an actual profession doing stuff. It sounds like what brought him was the bohemian lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, he had a beautiful wife, Carol uh, Merson, who also changed her name. To Errol. Errol. It's very different. They're, very beautiful. And a very real name. Yes. I've, I've met so many Errols. All the if time. If I had a dime for every Errol I met, yeah. I'd not have any dimes. <laughs> Um, maybe she really liked that old-timey actor like Errol Flynn, but he spelt his name differently. Two R's. Mm-hmm. 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 But that was the thing that they did, right? They tip a lot of the names of members. They just kind of cut off a parts. letter of their parts of their name. Yeah, most names are just shortened from yeah. their original, but sometimes they're, they're uh, like Helen once, she talked about in the interview, oh, yeah. was extended to Hellion, which yeah. is such a cool name. Uh, yeah. I like that one. Yeah. <laughs> you know she's out to start a revolution. Yes. <laughs> Stop bitching and start a revolution. Yeah. <laughs> I love that as far as a catchphrase goes. Good job on Wolf yeah, for coming up with that. Thank you, Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they were both artists. And so what they really came together and hoped to do was empower artists like themselves to thrive on collaboration and creativity. And um, they 
had like practices of radical honesty that they really wanted everyone to be doing. But then they also had this whole other concept where they saw that the current state of the world was very suicidal, ecocidal, um, and it was all killing the earth. <laughs> like um, they're not respecting the earth and mother nature and therefore we're bringing upon the end of the world mm -hmm. in a way, which was known as the death culture. The death culture. Yes. Um, so on one side, they're artists doing art together. And on the other side, there was this other belief that Dad. was very much like the mainstream is going to cause the death of everyone. Yeah, and it's very much like we see with a lot of cults where there has to be some sort of outside evil in order to mm -hmm. bring everybody closer. There's something different about all of you on the farm. You care more than any of those assholes outside this farm, so you deserve to be here. Not them, you. <laughs> yes. And it was a very big thing that they wanted to live tribally and really kind of take away the pair bond. So, like, going away from that nuclear family from that monogamous, like, paired-up world that everyone was doing, and they want to live more as a tribe where everyone is equal and everyone loves each other and everyone's on the same level, which is funny. Like, I mean, that's, like, written as the value, but they're clearly were everyone wasn't on the same level. There well, were favorites. There were ranks. It's interesting because, yeah, we'll talk about ranks a little bit, but it's interesting because you see, like, for example, Errol and Wolf, like, they're very much like, oh, yeah, any, anybody can date us, but, you know, if you try to date Wolf, he's going to say no. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's very much like leadership, the highest aspects, they can kind of have their coupling and sleep around as they choose. But I feel like this idea is used to control the members in a way. Because if you get too close to someone, you care about them too much. So you can sleep with anyone, just don't get too close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also at a certain time, too. Which we'll talk about later, but the whole spec I specking idea, too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. From being careful. Yeah. I can't wait to talk about <laughs> oh that. <my> Why <laughs> do you love it so much? <laughs> I, I, I guess because I had never heard of it before. Okay. <laughs> um. So, the one of the parts kind of related to this death culture and how it was really just like everyone, um, like there's a lot of murder and violence in the world and. Wolf had this concept that possessive attitudes about sex really fueled that. So, like, this is what was leading to jealousy and hostility, hate, violence, and murder in the world, is the possessive attitudes about sex, but also about possessive attitudes about belongings. Mm -hmm. um, so, in coming to this group where you're living tribally, um, what they're really looking at doing was, like, kind of making it so that no one has intimate belongings, um, but... Like, everything is shared between everyone because then that eliminates why be jealous mm -hmm. if everyone has the same thing. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> and this could definitely not go wrong at all. Well, and it's, it's really funny because when we look at Helen's story, she comes into this group as, you know, this wide-eyed, like, everybody's equal but then one of the things that comes up right away is everybody has different colored bracelets. Why are there different colored bracelets? What do these mean? So right off the bat, there is a hierarchy yeah. within this group. So um, 
your first bracelet you're given is green, which means you're a Zendik apprentice. Right. Then you get your, this is not an upscale to me. This is like the worst color. You get brown. <laughs> <laughs> you just are not feeling brown. I don't today. like brown. <laughs> it's the color of my excrement. Yes, it is. Oh. It's a healthy excrement you have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for you guys to be like, mine's purple. What's wrong with you? <laughs> um, brown bracelet means you're a core apprentice, usually given after about a year. And then you get a royal blue, which is core, which usually around two to four years. Then you get gray, which is family apprentice, usually after about five to six years. And then... The best of all colors. Yeah. Purple. Oh, of <laughs> course it is the ultimate. Yes. And this means you are now family, usually about seven years. I say usually because it kind of depends on what you have to offer the group and mm. how much people like you. Because yeah. it's not like a set in stone number. What is that? Just equal for everyone? Right. <laughs> and then there's also, this one's random, Dusty Rose. Dusty Rose. <laughs> Sounds like a country singer. Yes. Uh, these are family warriors who are not included in the hierarchy, but still held higher than green. They're usually like Zendiks that evolved to a certain level of consciousness, but then stopped. So it sounds like they're like either lazy or content. They're like, this is as far as I want to go. I don't care anymore. So yeah. they're like, okay, we accept you, but which I feel take like this color. It seems like all communes need people that are okay just going with the flow. That like yeah. that seems like an incredibly important part of having that work. Otherwise, you then have just people trying to rise further up and further up. And that's what yeah, I was thinking. If everybody's family living in the nice house, then like there's nobody to do the grunt work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Who's gonna work our sixteen hour days? Right. I love that the, they have these bracelets because I think we had another cult that did that as well where they had it, I think it was around like relationships or something. Mm, I think, yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah. Um, there are actually a good segue. This is like Marvelous mm. Galaxy of Disney or something. I am so segue. <laughs> so Wolf also had four stages of romantic partnership. This like takes all the sexiness out of it for me. So two people need to first work together. They need to be dedicated to working towards the farm. So mm. once you have established that you want to work for the farm, then you can build respect for each other. Okay. Yeah. That respect will then turn into a friendship. Oh. So you have full knowledge and acceptance of each other. Mm. Then you can move into love. But mm. this kind of love is lasting and can only be found as an only if I, you guys, I'm so sad they've disbanded. How will I ever find love that is lasting and real? It also, you know, it sucks for me because I was really invested in Alan, but we don't live at Zendik. So <laughs> but now we realize this all for love. So do they dictate like when you're in love? Like, you know, like, okay, you're, you're in love now. I have an announcement at dinner tonight. <laughs> Friendship. <laughs> um, it seems like. What I kept seeing, and I kind of talk about this in the interview a little bit, is whenever Helen gets close to someone or starts to reach that love, mm -hmm. they're like, Helen, your artwork sucks now. Like, your poetry sucks. Your love is making you suck. You need to break up with this guy if you don't want to suck. And I'm like, oh that's what I mean. Like, yeah. That's kind of how they control you is 
They yeah. don't say you can't be in love. They don't say you can't find a relationship, but they like mm-hmm. almost shame you. Yeah, well, and from what I was reading, a lot of the situations also weren't, like, naturally occurring things. Like, people, it wasn't two people just saying, oh, hello, fellow worker, and now I like you. Um, It was actually very much prearranged to their, like, oh, you should start talking to this Mm -hmm. person. Um, And I think that was both when Wolf was around and also when Errol was in charge. I think Errol was even a little bit more picky about pairing people together. It sounds like she enjoyed control. She was very much that type of leader where one minute she's going to, like, love bomb you, the next minute she's going to get angry at you, and then, like, you're torn down, and how could I have done this to Errol? But then she loves you again. She's like, oh, oh, thank goodness. She loves me again. So Mm -hmm. something we see a lot with these leaders. Yes. But Rachel... As a thing that has a vagina. Yes. Tell us about Speculum. (laughs) Speculum. So uh, this is a tool used by gynecologists um, in order to check the vaginal region of a woman. So about once a year, we go to see lady doctors and like get kind of swabbed for a pap smear so that's often where it will come in bill it's it's like duck imagine duck bill but like made of metal Mm -hmm. and then when you like kind of squeeze it it separates um and so they put that freezing cold metal uh and they're like oh it's gonna be a little cold don't mind that and then they're like (laughs) relax Relax, why aren't you relaxing? Uh, As they stick it inside you and spread it open, and then they come at you with a swab to get into your area down there and scrape off the side. And sometimes if they have to do a biopsy, they're like, there'll be a little pinch. And then they punch out a hole of your cervix without numbing you, and it's excruciatingly painful. I love how every woman listening to this right now, like, just reached their hand down to their vagina Mm -hmm. in pain. And every guy just lovingly caressed his penis going, thank God I have you. (laughs) (laughs) But the way Speculum comes into the group, because that's what it is, but that's not how they used it. So the way that they brought it in was for birth control because they didn't didn't want babies. condoms. Yeah, Wolf didn't like condoms, which... <laughs> Who does? <laughs> but let's be responsible. Yeah. Um, but there are natural forms of birth control. Um, some that by kind of following the ovulation cycle of a woman, using things like her temperature and using things like the consistency of the mucus that's down in that area, you can basically make a very educated decision or educated call on whether or not she is currently at risk of becoming pregnant. So um, they would line people up to have these inspections, so to say, where they could then analyze the mucus of the women to say like, yeah, you can have sex or nope, not for you right now. You might have a baby. Um, So that's what specking was so lovingly. And just so the as. listeners know, Rachel has offered to let me spec oh her <laughs> and describe her vagina in detail. This on is the on the Patreon. <laughs> you have to you have to sign up. Give some, give us some money, and you can be front and center for this occurrence. I, don't know if I even want to do this. <laughs> is that why you kept the spec in the fridge? Yeah, yeah. Ah, <laughs> in the freezer. Oh, no. 
All right, then without further ado, we will play the interview for you, which was just me and Helen Hells. And then uh, we'll come back and give you some closing thoughts. Hello, I'm here with Helen Zuman, author of uh, Mating in Captivity. How are you doing today, Helen? I am doing very well. How are you doing, Sean? Very well, thank you. I'm so excited we have you on the show. I just read your book. I, I love the book. I think there's a lot of great information there. And the thing that I'm most appreciative of with your book is just like any good character, I feel like I went on such a ride with you. There were times where I was like, get it, Helen, that's my girl. And there were times when I was like, Helen, what are you doing? He's so good for you. Why are you leaving him? <laughs> exactly. I have some of those uh, same feelings and thoughts when I read the book myself and remember my history. <laughs> yeah, I just, it was very honest. And it, I was like, thank you for just putting it all out there and just letting us kind of form our opinions there. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, and that was one of the things I was, I was consciously trying to do when writing the book was, you know, not to be hitting people over the head with like, I mean, I do, of course, talk about, you know, about the cult phenomenon in the very beginning and the very end, but just throughout the experience to let the reader just be there with me beat by beat you know, and, and, and have their own experience and have their own opinion and not just like put the experience in a box from the get go. Like this was bad. No, this is just, this is an experience. Let's, you know, let's travel along together and see how it goes. Right. Yeah. And one thing you said that really struck a chord with me towards the end of the book is you mentioned that whenever we talk about something like um, Jonestown, we talk about the flavor aid and we talk about the, the mass suicides and the murders, but we don't really talk about what brought the people there, who those people were. So that's one of the things that we really try to do on our show is try to show that, you know, people don't just walk into a cult thinking like, oh, I'm joining a cult. You walk into it with a good intention and you kind of see what happens as you're there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So great. One of the things that I wanted to kind of start with to kind of build the story for our listeners is, especially with the groups like Heaven's Gate, you know, we got Star Trek, we got Star Wars, we got all this like this alien boom that kind of set up people to want to know more about aliens, which brought them into the group. So just like that, in 1999, you described that the Matrix was kind of <laughs> your gateway into a bigger world. So can, can you kind of tell us what your mindset was in 99 and what kind of brought you to communal living? Uh, yeah, well, so how The Matrix played into the story, The Matrix, of course, came out in 1999, and I had graduated from Harvard in the spring of 1999 with a degree in visual art and a grant to explore back-to-the-land type intentional communities. And that first summer after graduation, I did visit a few places out west and, and in New York, but I didn't find any place that really resonated with me. And so in the, in the fall of 99, I had, I had been all over. I had been back home to Brooklyn where I'm from. And then I was headed out on another trip up north to Canada. And I stopped in Boston um, for a little bit to visit my, my sister there. And I went to see the matrix in a movie theater. And when I was in when I was in the theater watching that movie, I just, 
I just had this like incredibly visceral experience of feeling like I was living in the matrix in the sense that, that all around me, there were all these people who were just pretending to be fine with life as it was and not, you know, being honest with each other or even with themselves. Whereas I looked around and I saw this kind of mind numbing, soul killing machine that was just not only destroying, you know, the ecology and the plants and animals or whatever, but I wasn't so much aware of that right now. I, I was more aware of what I thought of as moment murder, you know, like people just getting jobs and doing what they're supposed to do for years and years or going to school and sitting in a, you know, in a desk, you know, facing forward and keeping their mouth shut and, and, and people just sort of hiding what they really felt under this skin of civility. And I left the theater and it was, it was late at night and it was, the streets were sort of deserted. And I, I went and like, I butt scooted down the sidewalk and I climbed the chain link fence to the playground. And I just did all these things. Like I felt like my body was just screaming for an escape from the skin of civility. And, and then, um, well, yeah, I guess it was shortly, I think it was, it, yes, it, I think it was, it was shortly after that, that, I, that, that I discovered Zendik. And I remember this, this piece on the Zendik website about the big lie saying everyone is lying to each other all the time, you know, by being polite, by omission, whatever. Um, and at Zendik, you could escape that. And, and that just totally keyed into my matrix experience and my sense of, you know, people just feeding themselves into the world chopping machine and the soul chopping machine and not even being aware of it. So, so at that time I was like, yeah, get me out, get me into a place where I can really be myself and be honest and just cut through all this bullshit. <laughs> Interesting. So, uh, the, what you kind of found in Zendik was you mentioned the death culture. So that's kind of the idea that we're all kind of lying and kind of fake to each other. Well, the death culture included that, but was also broader than that. It was this idea that, you know, human society as currently constructed was, was heading towards death, you know, was destroying the air and the water and the soil and the plants and the animals destroying each other, you know, through war and just everyday ecological depredation and yes, that everyone was, people were lying to each other all the time, that it was not possible to have an honest relationship, even, you know, as either as friends or, or as, as lovers, you know, as partners or whatever. Um, and that this, this lack of honesty, this inability to relate on a real level was then just feeding into ecocide, you know, because if people can't be honest with each other, then they can't, they can't cooperate. They can't, you know, really talk about their problems. They have all this jealousy and possessiveness and, and competitiveness that's just channeled into destruction. Whereas Zendik supposedly was creating a way of life that, that would allow people to channel their energies into, into creation and cooperation. Interesting. And one of the things that you mentioned when you were kind of searching for Zendik, which I kind of got a kick out of it, and it was something that was new to me, is uh, you had said that you found Zendik through the communities directory, which was a search that you could find different communities through. 
And I mm-hmm. think the reason that kind of resonated with me is, especially doing this podcast, you only hear about the bad about communes, but mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of good too. So can you kind of tell us, like, do you know what percentage of good communes there are or how often that you would run into something where it's more like a cult-like commune? Okay. Well, I just want to start with with a thought on the word commune that I never call Zendika commune, even though various people would. And according to the academic definition, it was that because we did live collectively and share, you know, share a lot. But I don't call it a commune because in my view, a commune is a place where people share decision-making power and where the land is owned and the money is controlled in common. And those things were not, were not true about, about Zendik. Mm-hmm. So, and, okay, and Zendik, I guess you could say, I would say it, it was a, you could say it was a communal group. It was certainly, it was certainly a group that, that it was. Um, and as far as like how many, you know, bad apples there might be in the proverbial barrel. I mean, I think, I think that, you know, these groups exist along a continuum from zero to Jonestown, you know, zero being a a super healthy community with like true collaboration and shared power built into its DNA. And then of course, Jonestown being mass suicide. And, but, 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 but along the way, there's, there are all these, there are all these nuances and all these, all these shades of, of gray in terms of the, of the health of a community. And so, you know, when I, when I look through, if, you know, when I, when I have looked through the community's directory, you know, post Zendik, you know, I have, I have seen a lot more red flags than I did the first time around. Um, you know, and, and I would say, and I would say, like, I see some groups, I'm like, yep, that's a cult, you know, and then I see other groups that I have had, you know, an experience of or some interaction with, you know, in the intervening years. And I'm like, well, you know, I think that group has some problems in terms of the degree of control it exercises over its members and in terms of how people are treated when they leave and how people, how free people feel, feel to leave and, and their relationship to the outside world. Um, but I mean, it, it's, it's hard to say, cause I mean, and of course, even that directory, you know, it, it's all, it, it's all self-reported. People need to fill out a, a form to, to be included. And there would be so, you know, probably hundreds, if not thousands of groups, even just in the U S that don't even think of themselves as being communities and wouldn't even ever fill out that form. Um, so, I mean, just, I mean, I don't know. If I had to take a wild guess, I would say it's kind of one-to-one, you know? But, like, <laughs> most of those groups are not in that directory. They're just, you know, hanging out in their little pockets, like, you know, all over the country in small towns and rural areas and big cities. And, you know, they're just sort of everywhere. That makes sense. <laughs> so um, once you got to the farm, what would you say a typical, a typical day looked like for you? Yeah, well, there were sort of two kinds of typical days. There were days at home on the farm and days on the road selling our magazines and CDs and bumper stickers and t-shirts to make money to support the farm. So at home, I would usually, you know, wake up pretty early in my collective living space. It was always dorm style. I had a space with a bed and, and room for my 
my belongings and my clothes, but generally not really any privacy. And, you know, I was just in a bed next to near other people's beds in a, in usually in a big open space. So I get up um, early ish, go outside to the outhouse, the um, outdoor toilets, then, you know, go and often breakfast, someone would make breakfast, go and have breakfast. Some days I would go up the hill to the barn and help milk the goats in the morning. Then I might, you know, go back to the farmhouse and, you know, help make lunch. Um, often, often, well, not every day, but there were often meetings. We had a whole, you know, a slew of different kinds of meetings that we would have. Sometimes there would be meetings at lunchtime or sometimes there would be impromptu, just any time of the day. Um, I mean, and then like, you know, maybe in the afternoon, I might go out on some work crew doing manual labor around the farm, like, you know, building a stone wall or digging a ditch or something. Um, and you know, we, we all would have dinner together after dinner, there might be like a meeting or we might watch like a video of Wolf, one of the leaders of, you know, of him, of him talking, you know, from uh, a decade or so earlier. Um, at nighttime, that was when, that was when dates occurred. If you wanted to get together with someone, you had to, well, the system changed while I was there, but, but, um, when I first got there, you had to go through a third party to quote, hit somebody up for, um, for a date, which involves going to a private space and having sex or a walk, which was, could be in a private space or could be an actual walk where you would sort of, you know, hang out and, um, you know, neck and kiss and get to know each other. So, I mean, those were sort of the, uh, like a, a, a sample <laughs> array of activities that might happen a day at the farm. But in a way, describing the activities totally misses the point <laughs> because what was really going on, what was, what was, so much, you know, stronger emotionally was like the sort of psychodrama going on in my head and, 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 and with, with, with these other people, because we, we were just, you know, in this story that we were starting this revolution and that we were, we had to be, you know, evolving and changing and, you know, on ourselves to, to be honest and cooperative all the time, you know, and so, and, and so that was sort of woven throughout all of these activities and then also, you know, criticism, you know, from other people at any time, you know, you could be called out for, you know, being competitive or, 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 or whatever other bad thing you might be doing because of your death culture conditioning. Uh, and then the other kind of typical day was out on the street on selling trips and a day, a day like that, when we were on the street, we usually stayed with people we knew, people we, people we just met while we were out selling who were kind of supported what we did or were interested and had some extra space. So we would just usually sleep on their floor, you know, kind of sardined up next to each other and, you know, get up again, you know, well, fairly early. We often stayed out pretty late, so maybe not as early as at home. And we brought all our own food and pots and pans and our water, all our own supplies with us. So we could, you know, cook our own food for ourselves. So we would do that. And then, um, and then, you know, clean out our vans and, you know, prepare, we called it ammo, the stuff we sold, we call it ammo, like get our ammo ready for the day. And then we would go out in the street, which could be, it could be an actual street corner or multiple street corners in a city, could be a festival, could be a 
concert or a protest. There were all different flavors of scenes that we sold. And so we would, you know, go to wherever we were selling that day and sell usually from the late morning or midday until, you know, could be, you know, 10 p.m., midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 4 a.m., depending on where we were and how late people, you know, were around to sell to. So just like, you know, uh, approach strangers <laughs> for hours and hours and hours and hours and tell them about the farm and tell them about Zendik and the our, our supposed revolution and make money. And then, you know, and then at the end of the night, we would all count our money. Everybody would count their money and we would all announce our numbers. And if you did well, you got to feel good. And then if you did badly, you got to feel terrible and, and be really afraid of, you know, what people were going to say to you. And then, um, go to bed and then and, and the morning we would also call home usually we had this was really not before cell phones but before widespread cell phones but we had 800 numbers that we would call from the road so every morning the leader of the trip would call home and and report about how we had done and then and also report if on anyone who seemed like they were being a terrible problem and then that person could get you know input from home so that's, and of course, you know, and, 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 and the same thing was true of these selling days, you know, that's the sort of, the, those were the surface activities. <laughs> and then the undercurrent running, running beneath was like, how am I doing? Am I on? Am I evolving? Am I serving the revolution? You know, am I going to get, you know, criticized when we're done for not making money? You know, all those things. Yeah, it was funny. As I was reading, I thought to myself, wow, because I'm not that much, we're, we're close to the same age. And I thought mm-hmm. to myself, wow, I am Helen's arch nemesis because I was that person who was at, you know, the OzFest, the Weenie Roast, the uh-huh. kind of places that you were going and pushing the, uh, the ammo. Uh-huh. So that's fun. But of course, I'm on the West Coast, so we probably never uh, cross paths. No, probably not. I mean, years earlier, Zendik used to be on the West Coast and Zendik would have been, you know, but, but I think at that time, Zendik was more into like Grateful Dead and stuff. I think that the sort of Ozfest Metallica type um, vibe didn't come up till a little bit later. Oh, okay. One of the things too, since you brought up selling and kind of the, the mindset there is, I feel like throughout the book, what I kind of got from it is you had this kind of pressure where if if you had any negative thoughts that if you didn't get them out that it was the death culture or that it was going to consume you so there were times when you there was one time where you said to another seller like you don't think their heart's into it and you think they're gonna be leaving the group soon so -hmm. where did that kind of mindset come from um yeah so I'm just remembering this quote from Wolf about negativity something about like negativity you know being they're not these are not the right words but like negativity being like deathly and it would it would destroy you and actually as I'm thinking about it I'm I'm remembering my my Catholic upbringing and you know when I was a kid I I I used to go to penance and I would confess my sins to the priest and and at Zendik, it was sort of, for me anyway, there was a similar dynamic. I, I had this idea that if I had a negative thought or a critical thought and I didn't purge it, then it was just going to like destroy me from the inside and it, it, it was going to ruin my vibe. You know, if I was on the street, it was going to make it, make it hard for me to sell. But also we had this belief in something we called psychic 
cause and effect, which meant that you attract to yourself what you are. You're always vibrating. You're always sending out signals into the universe, and your signals are bringing back to you whatever you're broadcasting. So if I was having a negative thought about somebody and I just kept it inside, then you know, then I was, I was going to make something bad happen kind of as a judgment on myself for having that thought. I mean, in reality, looking back, I would say that, you know, I would have sort of normal human thoughts about my fellow humans and myself. And I could have just recognized that that's what they were and let them go. But then I put this intense um, judgment on them and then created this distraction out of the judgment such that I couldn't, you know, I couldn't think about anything else. Um, and then I, like, I had to do something. I had to, you know, address this little bit of corruption and root it out. I'm just wondering, how has that affected you throughout your life? Is it still something that you, you speak about or is it something you internalize more and kind of process within? Like you mean judgments of myself or having negative thoughts? Yeah, just negative thoughts in general. Like, is it something that you're still open to talk to people about or do you kind of work through it now? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think my relationship to my thoughts has changed a lot, um, especially since I became a life coach <laughs> this past year. <laughs> and so, like, the work I do now, it's all about thoughts and, you know, really, really understanding them. And I think now, um, okay, so... I'm much more likely to, well, first of all, I don't, I don't really think of myself anymore as having negative thoughts. I just, I mean, I notice, I'm noticing my thoughts all the time. And sometimes, you know, I get angry or I, you know, get jealous or, or I, you know, I feel sad or disappointed, but I don't really think of those as negative thoughts anymore. I just, I'm just more likely to notice like, you know, like, oh, you know, I, I, I'm I, like, I'm pissed at my husband for leaving his dishes in the sink. And, you know, and I'm thinking he shouldn't do that. And I'm feeling angry about it. And then I'm slamming around the kitchen, you know, and I'm like, starting a fight. And I, like, all this, all this stuff is coming out of this thought. And the thought is optional. I don't have to think that way. I could think, oh, like he was in a hurry. You know, no big deal. I want I want the, the sink to be clean of dishes. I'll, I'll wash the dishes, you know. Um, but I, I think nowadays how I think about all these thoughts and the emotions that, that they create is just like this is part of the full spectrum of human experience, you know? And certainly I want to be aware when I like when I have, you know, have angry thoughts and that like that that cause me to lash out, you know, like be aware of that and when that happens kind of um uh go back over the experience and, and see what happened and what was going on. But I do it now, I think much more from a place of, okay, there's kindness to other people. You know, that's always very important. There's also kindness to myself. And, you know, chances are if I do get angry and lash out or do whatever other thing I might do that could be harmful to someone else, there's probably something going on inside me, some need that I'm not recognizing and some way that I that I have not been sufficiently kind to myself, you know, that is, that is worth addressing as well. 
I really like that. I think that's something that I need to kind of internalize myself and like think through some of those moments because you're right to do the same thing, like throw stuff around or like just kind of be generally moody when I mm-hmm. should just be looking at what's causing it. So thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, while you're at the farm, what would you say was maybe one of the strangest or kind of red flaggy things that came up? Oh, well, let's see. Well, okay, I'll, I'll just go with, I mean, there were, of course, so many strange red flaggy things. But the thing that, that pops into my mind when you, and you ask me that, that question is, it's something, I, it's, it's not in the book, but it was, um, I, think this, I think this was around, it might have been 2003 or so. But I remember I, 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 I went on a selling trip to New York City, including Brooklyn, I'm from Brooklyn and I always, I had plenty of problems with selling, but I always did well in Brooklyn. And this trip was no exception. I did well in Brooklyn again. And I was, one one day of the trip, I was partnered with the leader of the trip and she was having a really hard time. And I kind of helped her through it. She was, she was upset about this guy she was interested in. And I like took a roll of toilet paper and put it up on the dashboard of the car. And I was like, why don't you just like punch the toilet paper roll and pretend it's that guy? And she did. And, you know, and, and it helped her. And I came up with a creative solution. So I felt like I had done really well on this trip. Then we came home and Errol, the leader, she had this meeting and she, she told everybody that, you know, that we, that, that like, um, there were like maybe two or three people on this trip who had done well, everybody else had done terribly and all, and and I was in the group of people who had done terribly and who weren't really committed. And, and we should all go apologize to the other, these, other, these other people who had uh, supposedly carried the trip. And, and my experience of that trip was so totally different. But I knew I couldn't say that. I couldn't just be like, hey, Errol, I think you're wrong. And so I remember like sitting at the lunch table. We had these really, really long lunch tables. Sitting at this table. And it's funny because as I'm talking about this, I was actually having the experience that I, that I had had back in 99 of just feeling like there's this like skin of, of, of conformity around me that I can't break through. But like it was happening at that table. There was this story about this selling trip and I absolutely didn't believe it. It was making me furious and I was not allowed to break through it, but I couldn't just sit there. I was just too angry. It was just driving me nuts. So I just left the dining hall and I went down to this, this, this clearing, you know, way at kind of the other end of the property. And we were in the middle of, you know, middle of nowhere in North Carolina, not many, not many neighbors. And there was a, there was this clearing where there was a tree, sort of a small tree and there was a mat wrapped around it and there was a metal bar and, and the tree was there for beating. If you were really angry, you couldn't necessarily let it out or criticize the leader, but you could go beat the tree. And I went and I beat the hell out of that tree. I beat it so hard that I like raised, you know, I made my hands bleed. Um, and that, I mean, like it, it was just such like this, this beautiful, you know, example of like, of the perversion of, of self-trust. Like I knew how I felt and I knew why I felt that. And, and there was just nowhere for that rage to go except into this, into this poor little tree. That poor tree. <laughs> yeah, the poor tree. <laughs> Interesting. So, uh, 
I'm wondering, I'm going to ask you this. So I'll set this question up with this. I am a gay male. But uh, when I was reading this book, what do you think was the most uh, disturbing part to me? What do I think was the most disturbing part to you? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I know what I think is the most disturbing part to most people. But <laughs> since you preface this with, that with your being a, a gay male, I'm not sure if that would be the most disturbing part to you. Hmm. Um... I mean, yeah, I think the most disturbing part is is the rape scene, but I don't know if that would be the most disturbing part to you. Yeah, that was that was it. Uh, it was very um, honest and open, and it was a little disturbing. That, and then mixed with also the whole speculum or spec. <laughs> uh-huh. like, that's uh-huh. the one part from the book. I was like, this is what they did on the farm. This is so odd. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was it, it was odd, and it was, it was very much, I mean, I think the way Zendik did it, it was very much about control, you know, because we women, we didn't have a choice of methods of birth control for the most part. It, it, was, it was, you know, the rhythm method involving, involving specking, you know, or abstinence. We didn't, we didn't, we weren't allowed to use condoms until quite a few years after Wolf had died, and then we had to get permission to use those as well. So... Yeah, so in that way, you know, it was kind of weird and perverse. But in, in another way, it, it, it kind of made sense. And it actually mm-hmm. worked pretty well as, as birth control to, to have this ritual, to have accountability. I mean, a, a woman could spec herself. It's a little logistically difficult. It's totally possible. But when you make it a ritual, you make it a collective ritual that's required, then you make sure that everybody does it. And, and actually the the incidence of unplanned pregnancy on the farm was actually pretty low. Yeah, I, I kind of noticed that because it, it seemed like from your book that you didn't speak on it directly, but it seemed like there wasn't a lot of unplanned births. Um, do you know where this idea of spec came from? Like, was there just someone who was very good with uh, the body on the farm? Well, okay, I, I, I don't know exactly. So I'm I'm just, I'm guessing that you know, the farm was started in the late 60s and that this, this phenomenon of, of specking and like women getting to know their bodies was kind of in the zeitgeist and part of the counterculture at the time. Um, so I think that's probably where it came from. Also, of course, Zendik was all about, you know, being natural and organic and not using chemicals and stuff. So that might have also maybe played into, you know, not wanting to use birth control pills or other, I don't know, like an IUD that you, you know, I don't know, that you, you, you put in and it stays there for a long time. So, so there might have been a, you know, a, a, a pull towards like, this is the most natural way to do things. And there, there were women on the farm who had been, you know, been specking other women for many years and had gotten, you know, pretty good at discerning the nuances of, you know, what the quality of the mucus and the shape of the os meant and all that. So there was expertise, I think, that went into making this system effective. Interesting. Um, One of the other things that comes up is we see in a lot of cults that as people are there, they change their names. And that was something that seemed to run rapid at Zendik. Like, for example, Mm -hmm. you mentioned Errol, who was Carol. So a lot of dropping letters. 
Yeah. Uh, why do you think, um, do you think there's anything to the fact that you were there for about five years and you never changed your name? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I did try to change my name. Um, but I, the, the thing about changing your name at Zendik is that most people did it. And, but, but you had to sell it. If you wanted, if you wanted to change your name, you had to go on a relentless campaign to get other people to call you that name. And I guess like, I, I just never really had the required conviction about any, any idea for a name they came up with. Like I, people, you know, sometimes called me Hellion and some, some of the the things I wrote for the magazine were published under that name, but it kind of remained a pen name. I never really went after that. I don't, I don't actually know that I ever did come up with a name that I really liked and really tried, um, you know, really tried to assume. I do know that I, I didn't feel so good about my given name, about the name Helen. I associated it with my family of origin, which was supposedly bad and corrupt. You know, I thought of it as being very, as being very weak. Um, but I, yeah, I just, I just never, I never came up with, with something else. And other, sometimes like Errol would come up with a name for somebody and say, well, this is going to be so-and-so's name. And then their name would get changed that way. But that didn't happen to me. I mean, I, you know, I could say, you know, it, it means I did a better job of holding on to myself than I <laughs> might have. But, but, um, yeah, I think I, I just, I, I never, uh, never came up with anything I really liked enough to, to sell it to everybody else. Do you remember any of the, uh, the tried names or thought of names that didn't quite work? Well, I know towards the end, somebody suggested that I go by Hells, like H-E-L-S. <laughs> I didn't love that, so I didn't try to sell it. Also towards the end, I started calling myself Emerald. I think I wanted to change my name to that. And then after I did leave, but still, I left, but I still believed in Zendik, I, I kind of used it as, as sort of an, an alternate name. Like I went to some open mic one time and I said my name was like Emerald Majelma. Majelma is my middle name, which I really like. So yeah, that's the one I remember is, is Emerald. Okay. The thing that really resonated with me is uh, I love the movie Death Becomes, so I don't know if that's something you're familiar with. No. But in, in that, one of the characters' names is Helen, and it's kind of a rivalry between the two women. They're like frenemies, and the whole movie, yeah. she goes, Hell! So that's uh -huh. what I kept thinking of for you. <laughs> Hell! Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you kept your name. I, I don't think Helen's a, a bad name, so I think it's very uh, fitting for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like my name now, and I and I recently realized I got I recently have gotten really into my Scottish ancestry, which is only one part of my ancestry, but it's the part that I'm most most interested in. And I realized that for me, the name Helen comes from the Scottish side of my family. So I'm like, great, I love it. Oh, very cool. <laughs> um. What would you say, looking back, I mean, you went through this experience, no experience is all bad. So what would you say you took as positives from living within Zendik? Yeah, well, the number one most wonderful thing that came out of my time at Zendik was all the 
amazing friendships that that started there. I mean, to this day, and I have been gone from Zendik Farm for 18 years, to this day, like so many of my closest and dearest friends are fellow ex-Zendiks, you know, in the way where you haven't seen each other in four years and you get together and it, it seems like it was yesterday. Um, I think that, I think that Zendik, you know, attracted a lot of people who were pretty disillusioned with business as usual and really were able to imagine that something else might be possible and were willing to sort of go against the grain of what their family thought they should do, what the mainstream thought they should do and, and take a big risk. You know, I think that's sort of how, how we saw it, even if that wasn't exactly how it was. And, and so there's just all these incredible people who lived there, who, who I got to know because I was there and whom I would never have encountered anywhere else. So that's like the number one, like amazing mega prize that I got from my Zendik experience. Um, other than that, I mean, you know, there were like, you know, basic skills that I learned. I mean, you know, hanging out with the goats or, you know, learning to learning some things about gardening and building and other aspects of homesteading, going out in the street selling. It was, it could at times be incredibly painful, but there were times when it was, I just felt ecstatic doing it when I would sort of get on a roll and really feel my love and connection for my fellow human beings and feel like, yes, we really did, you know, share desire for a more beautiful world. Um, and, and then, you know, also, I just think that, so the experience in itself, I think any experience in itself, you know, isn't necessarily good or bad. It's like, it's just what you make out of it. And so I could have taken my years at Zendik and shoved them in a closet and closed the door and, you know, let them just, you know, be a pile of stinky guck that get, then goes anaerobic and just stays like that forever. And, and then maybe I would say it was a bad experience, but I didn't do that. I relentlessly turned that pile of stinky guck, you know, over the next many years and really turned it into a source of fertility, you know, like in terms of just like understanding on kind of a gut level, how people in groups, how people in groups work. I mean, the, the, um, you know, how, how, how group dynamics can be, can just, you know, create all kinds of productivity and, and joy and, and creativity and how they can, they can also lead in the opposite direction. So, yeah, I just think I got this like really powerful education in, in, in this sort of, in the, I don't know, maybe the, the, the darker side of how humans can be. Something else I think I got at Zendik, um, is, I mean, I think I was always a pretty sensitive person as far as my own feelings and reactions to other people. But I think at Zendik, I got really, really good at sensing what was going on with other people. And I kind of relate that to, you know, being, maybe being a, um, a, a child with abusive parents and you have to you have to pay super close attention. You have to know like when 
you know, that facial expression is going to come on your dad's face. It means he's about to beat you. Like, I mean, I'm just saying that from having read about these, these, you know, phenomena in books, not from personal experience, but, but I think in Zendik, like it was kind of an emotional matter of life and death to know, especially what the leader, what was going on in her mind and, you know, to pick up on the subtleties of, of her behavior. And so I think, I think that's something just like attunement to the, the subtleties of what's going on with people around me, I think has been is something very valuable that, that came out of that experience. Yeah, I would agree. That's, that's a very good skill to have. Yeah. Um, and speaking of parents, I feel like your mom was probably one of the best supporting characters in this book, mm-hmm. just even though she wasn't in it a whole lot. But mm-hmm. you mentioned her kind of method of letting you kind of do your thing, letting you kind of grow and go to the farm, even though she seemed to kind of see it for what it was. And she would kind of warn you, but not dissuade you from being there. How would Mm -hmm. you say that method of parenting was? And how would you say that affected you as a person and being at the farm? Well, I think it, I think it was brilliant. I think it was a brilliant strategy that she adopted. There's this, this book. Well, there are these two books that I read, one right after the Zendik and one a little later. Um, well, so there's Time Bad and Cult Mind Control, which is a book that I read right after, you know, in 2005. And then Releasing the Bonds is sort of a, an updated version of it by Steve Hassan. And so I read Releasing the Bonds more recently. And, you know, there's stuff in there about what to do if you're a kid or someone you love is in a cult. And what he describes you should do is kind of exactly what my mother did. My mother hadn't read the book, but she figured it out on her own. And, yeah, I mean, she she just she just decided she was going to let me be who I was and do what I was going to do. And that she was simply going to continue to let me know that she was there. Um, and, you know, when we talked about the farm, she came to visit a couple of times. She, she did say critical things, but she never like panned the whole enterprise. You know, she, she expressed curiosity. She was, you know, willing to like be with the people there and kind of just talk to them and be friendly. Um, and so in the back of my mind, you know, the whole time I was there, of course I was thinking that she was corrupt and of the death culture and I, and I wouldn't really have a kind of honest conversation with her for the most part. I would just, you know, make bullshit up about, Oh, the goats and this trip and that trip and whatever. But, but, but there was, you know, but in somewhere deep inside me, I did know that she was there and that I could rely on her and then a couple times when I was off the farm, once in 2002, and then again when I left for good, you know, well, well, when I was gone in 2002, I got into some serious trouble. And I just knew in my body I could call her and I could talk to her and she would listen to me and she would care about what was going on with me. And I knew that I couldn't call the farm and do the same thing. So that was kind of an important thing for me to know. And then when I left good you know I was hitchhiking and this you know truck driver gave me his cell phone and he was like call your mother and I did um and then and then she helped me sort of you know kind of get back on my feet you know financially and just kind of you know manage you know having wrested myself away from you know my what, what, what felt like my home and family of five years to to start over again so yeah just knowing 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 that she was there and then being able to eventually, you know, to feel the difference between her unconditional love and Zendik's highly conditional love. You know, both of those were just 
really helpful to me. Very nice. Yeah. And I remember the truck driver part. I, I really liked that story. It was so random to, you know, be kind of in that type of relationship you were in where you said you were being kind of picked up from one area and hanging out with the truck driver in the truck and yeah. then you're dropped off. So mm-hmm. that kind of uh, hit home because my dad was a truck driver when I was young. So I kind of wondered, like, did he have a Helen on the side too? <laughs> <laughs> never know. You never know. <laughs> So um, my last question, what would you say to, you know, a 22-year-old, you know, what if they came to you today and they said, I want to join a commune? What would you say are things that they should maybe look out for or look for in trying to find one that they would fit into? Right. Okay. So I would say there's sort of two parts to that question. There's like what to look out for, what to be wary of, and then how to find the place that is right for you. So as far as the first question, I would say, number one, find out who controls the money and who owns the land um, and also how the group is governed. And if, you know, if it's not, if the ownership of the land is not shared or in a trust or something and one person controls all the money, red flag, run away. Um, and then other other things to other things to think about, which I mentioned a little bit, you know, earlier, are like um, relationships between people who still live in the group and people who have left. Often, that's a very telltale signal because if if the group is is a, is a coercive one, then the people who are still there are going to have serious judgments about people who have gone. They're going to think that those people failed, that they went over to the dark side, and so on. And so, like. In a, you know, in a cult, there's no legitimate reason for leaving. So that's, that's one thing to look at. Um, I mean, those are just some, yeah, some basic things to look at. In terms of finding uh, a group that is suitable to you, I mean, I think one thing to look at is kind of how much interaction you want with other people, like how much privacy you want, the, the degree to which you want to kind of run your own show, which is funny because that, that, that was a pejorative Zen expression was you're just trying to run your own show. But um, like, so, so, okay, I'll take myself as an example. I mean, I, I, I love, I love being with people and I also really like being alone. I would say I, I tend towards introversion, you know, and I, I'm happy to spend an entire day by myself or I only see my husband. That's fine. I'm also, I, I also enjoy, you know, being with people. Um, but so, because in, in, in the range of different kinds of, of communities, I mean, there's, there's co-housing where, you know, everybody like usually has their own house or their own apartment and have their own space. They're, you know, probably if, if it, if, you know, if it's, uh, not right in the city, probably everybody owns their own car. People have cars. Um, and, and, and there's like, there's like limited shared responsibilities and, and, and you're totally responsible for your own money too. So that's sort of at one end of the spectrum. And then at the other end might be an actual honest to goodness commune, like real commune, not cult, like Twin Oaks or East Wind, where, where people, well, well, you have a small amount of your own money in the form of monthly allowance. Um, but you know, maybe you have your, you have your own room, but you share the other facilities and you eat meals in, in a, a shared dining room or dining hall. And, you know, you're, you are working a certain number of hours per week and maybe, well, at Twin Oaks anyway, there's a labor coordinator who figures out who's going to work 
in what areas, how many hours per week. Um, so, so, so like, yeah, how much do you want to be in other people's business and have them and have them be in yours? Um, you know, and so where in that continuum do you want to be? There's another, this, um, an eco village earth haven that I have been spending time at, you know, in the past six years or so, um, that, that, that I would sort of put in the middle, like there, it has for me a really nice balance of, of, you know, cooperating and, you know, shared responsibility and sort of extended family type friendship. Um, but also, you know, individual responsibility, like being responsible for your own money, you know, and, and sort of being able to create the degree of autonomy that you want there. Um, you know, and then there's questions of, of, of location, you know, do you, do you want to live in the country? Do you want to live on a farm? Do you want to learn homesteading? Do you want to go back to the land, you know, or do you want to live in a city and sort of maybe do urban homesteading, or maybe you don't care about, about the birds and the bees and <laughs> the plants at all. And, you know, you want to live in a high rise. I mean, there are some co-housing communities that are just, you know, uh, you know, buildings, apartment buildings. Um, and then, and then there's a question of values, like what really matters to you. And so, you know, some communities are there, maybe they have some sort of an you know, ecological sensibility, but, but, it, but, but they're mostly about um, just, you know, creating a sort of, you know, a, a, a pleasant, friendly, cohesive neighborhood experience, as opposed to the sort of anomie of, you know, separated city living. And then there are other groups that like are on some kind of a mission, you know, like the Catholic worker wants to alleviate poverty and treat every human being as if they're a manifestation of God. I mean, that's my, that's just my statement of it. That's not probably what they would say. Um, so yeah, like, is there, is there a, a mission um, that you, that you, that is very important to you and you want to find people who share it? Um, so yeah, so those are just some things to think about. But another thing I think about if, if you are interested in, in joining some kind of a, you know, like a commune or a community or a group is just that it totally doesn't have to be forever. And often when you, when you enter, if you enter a cult and there's no legitimate reason for leaving, then it does take on this all or nothing flair. Like I have to buy in all the way or I don't belong. But, but in most places that is not true. <laughs> and it, you can totally go and just try, try places out. You can go and visit. Most places will have, um, you know, some clear, clear structure, you know, for visitors where you can go and, and just try it out and see if you like it. And I would say like, yeah, be willing to, to go and try various places out and stay as long as it feels good to you. And don't be afraid to leave, you know, for, for whatever reason, if it's just like, I just don't like it here. Well, that's fine. You know, I think, I think, and I think, um, you know, maybe something that's very helpful if you do want to live in a group setting is, is, is to, is to try a lot of them out. And that's maybe how you, how you get, get a sense of, of what really works for you. Very nice. Thank you. And yeah, this, uh, the book is very inspiring because we get to see you, you know, like I said in the beginning, we get to explore with you the highs and the lows of Helen's life. We get to see what it was like for you living within the, uh, the Zendik farm. So anybody who's looking for more information on you or just needs that kind of inspiration that we get from you, where can they find you? 
Um, they can find me at my website, HelenZuman.com, H-E-L-E-N-Z-U-M-A-N. And you can find my book there and links to all the places to buy it and various writings that I've done. I also have a podcast, Chocolate Church, um, available on you know Apple and so on, all the other places. And that's also my website. And I would invite anyone who is interested to go ahead and join my email list and you will get some bonuses from deep in the vault of my Zenic experience. And also, like I mentioned before, I am now practicing as a life coach. And so my, my emails, you know, they I talk about Zenic, I talk about cults, I talk about life coaching, you know, so you get sort of the full gamut of things. And I think those are, it's all totally related because, you know, culting is all about um, relinquishing self-trust, you know, not trusting yourself and sort of you, you using your your storytelling power against yourself and i would say coaching is all about um developing self-trust and using your your storytelling powers for yourself interesting i've never thought of it like that mm-hmm. well great this has been um such a great experience for me as someone who, you know, just recently read your book and being able to kind of pick apart some of the thoughts that I had. And also I appreciate you bringing to the table some of the things that weren't in the book. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on our show today. You are so welcome. It has been quite the pleasure for me as well. Thank you. And I'm always going to think of you as hell. I hope you know that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You, you go right ahead. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> So, how do we like the interview? So good. Yeah. Great job, Sean. I'm so glad that she was able to take the time to connect with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it really was a treat to be able to read the book and talk about, you know, my thoughts or questions. Um, it was a very thought-provoking book. I feel like um, during the questioning and after, like, I feel like I connected with her. I really like Hells. Yeah. Hells. <laughs> Best friends. Best friends. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. And um, one thing I don't think we meant, like, she left before the end of uh, Zendik Farms. Mm-hmm. But since she departed from them, they actually have kind of concluded as a group and disbanded to the winds. Yeah, it was said in the book that um, I think they got too picky and they were too birth control because Helen said she kind of just watched it go down to like a dozen people mm-hmm. and then eventually Errol passed away and other people tried to lead, but I think their heart just wasn't really into it anymore without mm-hmm. either of the original leaders. So yeah, it just kind of slowly disbanded. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and I guess even, um, I read that later on toward the end days, they actually were all about getting married and like yeah. all the people were having babies, which is very different from the earlier things. Cause aside from the fact that they really went out of their way to control whether, um, people were going to become pregnant, um, they also just in, like, they didn't want anyone to have a child. And if a child did happen to occur, they would separate the children from the mothers and not let them be raised with them, which we see that so often. Yeah. I feel like in two of our last cults recently, we had this going on. Yeah. Yeah, that last one you gave us. Ugh. That joyful, <laughs> that joyful cult. I'm keep making this noise. <laughs> 
And if they did happen to have children, they were always homeschooled. Um, so, but not like in an actual kind of structured way where they were following an accredited curriculum, more in the like, what do we think they need to know yeah. kind of way. Cool. cool. Anything else on your part, Mr. Allen? Um, it's just interesting how they talk about, you know, having unprotected sex and they have that birth control piece, but in terms of, like, not having sex with condoms, I'm just, like, if there was, like, an outbreak of, like, an SED in there, it's a little dangerous. Everyone has it. We share everything (laughs) here. (laughs) I guess everyone will get it, yeah. Well, it's funny you say that, because I don't want to go too far into the book. I want people to read it. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, there was, it was kind of known, like, oh, this person has herpes, or this person has this. So if you sleep with them, you're... You're risking that, but... Um, at least they're open about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have to be at that point. Yeah. But I think, like, at least, um, like, major STDs, like, since they're only sleeping with each other and not outside yeah. of the farm, like, it's a little safer that way, but, I, yeah, it's dangerous that you could wipe out your whole yeah. little village because, yeah, everybody's sleeping with each other. I mean, I guess if someone were to sleep with someone outside and they catch something, then that's a, way, that's a tell for them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> did she talk about living therapy in the book? Was that something? Uh, if she did, I don't remember. Um, well, I just think it's really interesting. It was. It seemed very much like the game. Like that oh. they had their own version of this, like this living therapy, which was the rubric under which they would attack each other for perceived failings and use those failings to diagnose areas of psychic or philosophic corruption mm. in each other. So then that was talked about, just not, I don't think in that term, living mm, therapy. Okay. Yeah. So I, yeah. The fun games they come fun up with. Fun games. Yes. I'll stick with Clue. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do that here. Oh, oh sorry. It was no. not Colonel Mustard. No. So would you say this group had a charismatic leader? I, I think so. Yeah, with both Wolf and Errol. Well, and it's so weird because Errol sounds like really like mean and horrible. I guess that's the same as Mother God. She was so mean and horrible, but she had these people that were like, she is mother. She is magic. Yeah, and I think part of it is like to be part of this commune, you kind of have to get rid of all your belongings. So Mm -hmm. at that point, you got to love Errol or not. Like, you got nowhere else to go in a lot of people's cases. Yep. Um, how about alienation? Well, I guess I answered that. <laughs> <laughs> like, there was some aspect of it. It wasn't as bad as some other ones. Because right. it sounds like Hells was able... <laughs> Hells. Hells. Uh, Helen was able to uh, keep her relationship with her mother and, like, always knew that she was there to support her. Um, so, like, it, it wasn't as bad as someone's where it seems like they actively go out of the way to break you apart from ever reaching out. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, they still kind of shun you after you're gone. Yeah, that's the big fear is you disconnect from your outside family and friends because it's like, well, I have everything I need here, and if I'm not happy with it, I could be kicked out. (laughs) And they end up really investing (laughs) as a result. How about belief system? Yeah. Yeah, death culture. Yeah. Death culture is a thing. Which is outside evil. Yeah. And I guess since we're talking about, like, a commune, which I know sometimes the word commune can be tossed around or not, but sense of community. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and I think um, 
like uh, you had a quick chat how Helen found them in a directory. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not like a directory for communes, in quotes. It's a directory for intentional living groups. Right. Like where people, there are tons of groups out there where they have like a farm together that they're all intentionally living in order to help support. So probably a less, what's it called? Alarming word is an intentional living community. Well, and this, funny enough, this makes me think back to our interview with another writer, Amanda Montel, Mm -hmm. who talked a lot with us about the word cult just being like, anything's a cult. Yeah. So that word doesn't necessarily have to be bad. And I don't think this commune or intentional living space was necessarily that bad. It was, I think, mentally very draining. And like they use different devices to keep people there. But yeah. like you said yourself, like they didn't force you there. They didn't really force you to do anything you didn't want to do. It was just an alternative. Yeah. A lot of living. people let themselves do these things. Yeah. And they definitely like they kept themselves going off of the hard labor that people put in. Yeah. And that's the thing. They were making them they do were, a lot of heavy lifting and they stuff. They were taking the advantage day. of some people. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what we see is you keep people tired. You keep people yeah. busy. They don't have time to think, like, is mm-hmm. this, am I happy? Do I want to be here? Yeah, they're just kind of in survival mode. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, yeah, well, thank you for taking the time. Thank you to Helen yes. for sitting down with us. Or with you. We <laughs> listened later. I'm sorry. I have a job. <laughs> I just have a job with very easy hours. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So uh, like Helen said in the interview, go to HelenZuman.com. Uh, she is a life coach now. You can also chat with her about her experience. She's very happy to talk about it. She's like me where she's like, everybody goes through shit. So you might as well talk about it and like mm-hmm. learn from it rather than mm-hmm. like hide from it. Yeah. So cool. So this one at least wasn't as heavy as Colony of Dignity. And I think next week might be a little more on the fun side as next week we're going to talk about Hugh Hefner. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it's come out from uh, Holly Madison and some other of the uh, bunnies that it was a little culty living with uh, Hugh Hefner and being a rabbit. Funny. Funny. <laughs> <laughs> Just being a rabbit over here. Yeah. <laughs> Having a good time. All right. Thank you for listening. If you get bored in the next two weeks, you can catch me on Solving for X with the lovely Kevin, where we are recapping. Right now we're in the Phoenix saga of the original X-Men series. This is a really exciting time for us with lots of guests. Ooh. How about you, Alan? Um, you can... Also find us um, on Marvelous Galaxy of Disney, where we talk about anything uh, under the Disney umbrella, Marvel, Star Wars, Disney, Hulu, Hulu. They own everything now. (laughs) Yeah. Everything. Everything. And you can find me on A Real Bodice Ripper, a podcast about romance novels and how they are sometimes problematic, but also delicious. listening. We'll see you for the half. Bye. Bye.